So welcome to the, uh, our two-week retreat in Phuket. Uh, I'd like to have you all introduce yourself, but I don't think we have enough time. So as we approach this, what is it, seventh week, we return now to the practice of shamatha without a sign. Um, and maybe it's worth a couple of minutes just to point out the differences between this and actual Dzogchen meditation. Now, of course, the preface is that this can turn into Dzogchen meditation, and for the very gifted ones, it is Dzogchen meditation. Um, if one asks for a really short response, really short response, what's the difference between just the awareness of awareness and Dzogchen meditation where you're breaking right through your coarse mind through the substrate mind and right down all the way to the ground of pristine awareness. It's really a matter of grasping. And that is in the coarse mind, we're just up to our neck and grasping, right? We're grasping ourselves, grasping, it's just, it just, just all grasping. When you settle in the substrate consciousness, that coarse grasping, all the grasping to the, des- to the di- desire realm, okay? All the, all the allures, all the pleasures of the surrounding world intangible ones like fame and appreciation, tangible ones like sensual pleasure and acquisition and so forth. When you're resting in the substrate consciousness, all that's gone. There's not, a, there's not a trace of it. You're not even aware of the desire realm. When you're resting in the substrate consciousness, you've crossed the threshold over into the form realm. You're disengaged, and I made a strong point of that because there's a lot of confusion about that in this modern world about thinking after you've achieved shamatha, you're still, your senses are still open. Well, they're not. It's very, very clear. But that's okay. If people don't believe it, that's fine. Um, but you, So clearly, when you're resting in the substrate consciousness, free of all grasping to everything in the desire realm, um, but there's still grasping. Right? And there's that grasping to the pleasure, the, the grasping to the, the pleasure of resting in the substrate consciousness, grasping to the clarity, grasping to the stillness. And that's what holds you back. Right there. That's why you can, you can stagnate there, tread water indefinitely, uh, and never break through. So that's the short answer. And that is, in Dzogchen meditation, you're releasing all grasping, even to the substrate consciousness, and then breaking right through. The little bit longer answer, but it's not much longer, is that Dzogchen meditation, as Dujum Rinpoche points out, is Dzogchen meditation is nothing more or less than sustaining the view of reality from the perspective of rikpa. So if you don't have the perspective of rikpa, then you're not practicing Dzogchen meditation. That's kind of like raising the bar pretty high. But there it is. It's from Dujan Rinpoche. He's a pretty big authority. Uh, a little bit more broadly speaking, Dzogchen meditation, of necessity, one could even say by definition, is nested within the triad of a way of viewing reality. So, so the re- view... The meditation itself, okay, the meditation is non-meditation. It's not doing anything at all, right? And then thirdly, and this is something I won't elaborate on, but it's very large and very important, is the Dzogchen way of life. You know, there's just a whole way of life. Just like if you're a, 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 if you're a, oh, there's so many things. But for many professions, there's a way of life that you couch your profession in, right? There's, there's the monastic way of life, which is really you know, it's designed to help you in your meditation. Well, there's likewise a Dzogchen meditation way. There's a, there's a bodhisattva way of life. The whole way of life, the, that which is taught in the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, all that is a way of life designed to help nurture, cultivate, and sustain bodhicitta, relative and, oh, and ultimate bodhicitta. That's why it's a 90-page book rather than a two-liner, develop relative and ultimate bodhicitta. We're finished, you know. It's a whole way of life. If this is imperative, 
If it is an imperative, that is, in order to achieve liberation, right, to achieve your own liberation, nirvana, the monastic way of life, or something very similar to it, is exactly what's recommended. Now, you might recall, it's hard for me to be really brief, but you notice that by now, uh, that for, as, after the Buddha's achievement enlightenment, he began teaching quite quickly thereafter, for, four, for 12 years, for 12 years, there were no monastic precepts. He had plenty of monastic followers. They would renounce the home life. They would renounce all of that. They would go off with him. They were, they were 100% living as monks, right? But they had no precepts. Not a precept of celibacy. No precepts at all, right? Because they, they, I think they just all intuitively knew. I think probably the example, the presence, the wisdom of the Buddha was so strong that anybody that had that direct contact with him, it was kind of like, yeah, any, anything in, incompatible with this pursuit of ethics, of samadhi, of wisdom, the core of the pract, any, any aspect of one's way of life that would be incompatible with that would be crazy. Then why not just stay home? You know? Why have we made this big, this big sacrifice? Leaving home, security, income, children, all of that. You know, you know, hopefully children haven't had yet. Uh, why would you leave all that behind and then just go off and blow it, you know, do something incompatible with the precious teachings of the Buddha? So for 12 years, nobody needed to have any precepts. It was just taken, and they didn't break any. Oh, Lasso. It is, I think it is a very interesting and very relevant point. And that is, if you're really coming from the inside out, if it wasn't your parents made you become a monk, or you're persuaded by somebody outside, and you say, okay, okay, and then now what do I have to do? Oh, I can't do that. Okay, I can't do that. Okay. Oh, I can't do those 253 things, you know, of a fully ordained monk. Okay, I have to remember them now. If you're working from the outside in, then you have a lot of things to remember because you're kind of getting it from the outside in. You don't have, it's not coming so much from the inside. Whereas for those first 12 years, those who made that great step out into the homeless life, it sounds so Dzogchen when I say that, homeless life. You no longer have a home in samsara. You no longer have a home in the identity of being a samsaric being. That's Dzogchen. But for those who made that step, it was such a strong step, such a, a major step, that of course you, you, you've now, to use a phrase that I like so much, you're all in. Like in the poker game, you're all in. You've, 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 you, haven't held, you haven't maintained little, any cords of security behind you know, like your secret Swiss bank account and so forth. You've done nothing of that. You've, you've, you've cut loose. You've given up all hope. Your parents say, oh, you've blown your future completely. You've totally given up your future. Now, where's it going to be for profession? Where's the children? Where's the grandchildren? Where's the security? Think of your security, you know. <laughs> and your aunt says, yeah, I am. Bye. <laughs> and I'm traveling far away. That's what all the, so many of the great sages say when you really are stepping forward. You're really, when you're when you're all in, when you're totally devoting yourself. It's not six months, it's not one year, it's not three months, it's not eight weeks, it's you're all in. They say travel far away. Because in all likelihood, your whole network of connections, your family, your friends, and so forth, they will not get it, they will not support it, they will think you've just gone bonkers. And they will do everything they can to save you, to rescue you. My parents did, my parents did, my father especially. And out of total loving kindness and concern, a loving father not wanting to see his son throw away his education, his career, the possibility of family, security, a good and satisfying life. I now, you know, in retrospect, at the time it wasn't so clear to me, but at the time, uh, you know, in retrospect, it's clear. He was, he was simply being a good father. 
and operating out of the only worldview he knew of. And everything he did was made sense. It kind of pissed me off. I pissed him off too. But that's because we're, at that time, operating from very different worldviews. And so I did what I needed to do, and that is I traveled very far away. If there was a place further away from California than the center of India, not many. You know. so, but that, that's it. I mean, that's, I just did it because it was necessary. So that's it for the, for, the, for the pursuit of liberation. It's couched in a way of life. And you see, you don't necessarily have to have precepts. So these 30, 40 students of mine who are in full-time retreat right now, a couple of them are fully ordained, most of them aren't. But even those who aren't, there's hardly any difference at all between their way of life and if they, if they were ordained and they were not ordained. Virtually no difference at all, right? So as for the Shravakayana, the pursuit of your own liberation, as for the Bodhisattva, you don't just sit and practice Donglen and go, then go out and act like a schmuck. You know. And say, well, that's never, you know, you know, don't bug me. And I'm, I'm going to be a Bodhisattva on my cushion and a schmuck self-centered, reifying schmuck when I'm off the cushion. Don't work that way, right? So a whole way of life. Well, then is, is Dzogchen going to be any different? I'll maintain my materialistic world, worldview, I'm going to, and I'm going to continue with my life as usual, but man, do I like those Dzogchen teachings. I really love this open presence. Yeah, man, I'm a Dzogchen practitioner. Yeah, I don't think so. You know, it's kind of, I mean, it's obvious. And it's not me making this up. It's everywhere. Anybody who studies it well but it, sometimes we soften it down because that doesn't sound nice. You're going to have ma you'll have to have major lifestyle shift. You're going to have to radically investigate, scrutinize all of your fundamental assumptions about reality. Those two, the view and the way of life, in a way, that's much, 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 much harder than just sitting in open presence, isn't it? Questioning your worldview, your assumptions, everything you've built your life on and very possibly your career on, question all of that. And then your whole way of life, it may not be at all compatible with the Dzogchen way of life. Well, so that's hard. And so, so some teachers say, well, it's hard, you know, live with it or don't pretend you're practicing. And other ones wanting to popularize it, maybe, and maybe to be very charitable, because I want to be charitable. They say, okay, well, you're, no, you're, you, you're not up to it, but I'm going to sow some seeds. I'll sow some seeds in your mind stream for Dzogchen. Maybe that will serve you well in some future life. So there it is. So coming back to this practice, it can be from the inside out. As Penjin Rinpoche and as Padmasambhava in Natural Liberation says, uh, there's the way of coming to the meditation by way of the view and coming to the view by way of the meditation. You remember? So the simple way would be, okay, now but this means you're really going to practice, right? And you're going to go into the practice and you're going to release all grasping you possibly can. And you're going to live in a way of life that utterly supports that total release of all grasping. And in terms of your view, as much as possible, release all grasping. And then see if it can come right from the inside out. Simply discovering the Dzogchen view from the nature of your own awareness. That's sublime. I mean, one can say that's very, you know, scientific. It's evidence-based, so to speak. Right? Oh. So I want to wrap up. We're going to spend today, this, that is just one session, um, just in the preface that first step that Padmasambhava teaches, because of course I'm coming back to natural liberation, where the practice is, let your eyes be open, and now simply rest your awareness, that is, bring your awareness into space, uh, but without taking space or anything else as the object. Don't meditate on anything, don't do anything. Simply sustain your presence, sustain the flow of awareness, 
but not awareness directed to anything. And again, don't do anything. In other words, by don't do anything, don't activate your ordinary sense of identity. Okay? Right now, I am. I'm, oh yeah, I'm Alan Wallace, right now arising in the mode of Dharma teacher for just a few more minutes and then I'll stop. But it's activating something, right? Or if I wish, and actually I have, do my best to dissolve that ordinary sense and then to arise with pure vision and teach from that perspective. Okay. But that's then stage of generation kind of practice. Right? Now we've done that now, so you know what I'm talking about. But where you dissolve your ordinary sense of identity and then out of that emptiness you arise with pure vision, divine pride, and then you're active. Well, that's what I've been trying to do. Okay? But that's just stage of generation. Right? Ah, in this practice, you dissolve your ordinary sense. You don't contrive. You don't generate. You don't arouse kind of a di divine pride out of emptiness. Just for the time being, you simply totally deactivate as much as you can, even the last vestige of, your sense, your, of the sense of yourself as a sentient being, which we're pretty deeply habituated to. Deactivate it. Just, and, that, and that means... Just don't do anything from that perspective. Okay? So I take the analogy of the, of the non-lucid dream. You're in the midst of a non-lucid dream. Okay, well, stop. And just don't do anything to activate your sense of being the person in the dream, which is then is locked into non-lucidity, because you're not the person in the dream. You're, you're the dreamer, right? Well, if you can't be lucid, and you don't want to go the kind of the, the circuitous, circuitous route, of imagining being in the non-lucid dream and imagine you're dreaming, which is quite cute, you know. Uh, so you're imagining you're having a lucid dream while you, in fact, are having a dream, but you're not lucid. That's stage regeneration. Right? Oh, yeah, I'm tired of talking. So let's do it. But in this not doing, and that's what we're doing right now, this is a very close approximation to Dzogchen meditation, of not doing anything at all. And then not doing anything at all, at least we're not doing anything actively to obscure our own substrate consciousness or to obscure rikma. But of course, this is meditation. This is the this practice, if and only if we are sustaining the flow of clear, still cognizance. Can I put that in 64 font, in neon, five, five different colors, flashing lights? Okay, don't forget, don't forget. As long as we are maintaining a clear, still flow of cognizance, then we're practicing. If that gets veiled and we're just spacing out, sitting there with blank mind, we may as well just stop. I think it would be better to go for a swim. Swimming, swimming is healthy. That isn't healthy. That makes you stupid. Right? So swimming becomes stupid. Oh, I think swimming. Yeah. Okay, now I'm totally exhausted of talking. I'm going to stop. Enjoy your practice.
One last one. We have just a few minutes, uh, but I'd like to continue on, especially in light of the fact that a fair number of you have told me that um, sometime in the foreseeable future, uh, you'd like to go into extended retreat, really continue this practice in much greater depth. Um, and so the words here are of immense value. Um, and I'm just going to cite here a statement, a, a verse from Atisha, another text by Atisha, a Lamp for the Path to Enlightenment, which was the first Lam Rim that he wrote as a great Indian pundit. He wrote it specifically for Tibetans, and it really caught on, because that, that format of the Lam Rim, the stages of the Path to Enlightenment, is taught in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism at this point. Uh, but here's what he says about just one verse about shamatha. He says, as long as the conditions for shamatha are incomplete, samadhi will not be accomplished even if you meditate diligently for a thousand years. So some of you have told me, you know, like going for a year or two years. Um, none of you have mentioned that you want to go in for a thousand years. Um, he was kind of actually underestimating what he was really getting at. What he's really saying is if the conditions aren't complete, you're never going to achieve samadhi. A thousand years, lifetime, a thousand lifetimes. If this is not magic, uh, achieving shamatha, it's not esoteric. I think you, you know a lot about practicing shamatha now. It's about putting together the causes and conditions, just like growing a tomato plant is not esoteric or mystical. It's is it the right kind of soil, the right type of moisture, getting enough sunlight? Do you have good seeds? Are you mulching it, fertilizing it? So, and then if you bring, bring them all together, then even once you've brought all the conditions together to grow a tomato plant, then even if you, if you sit to the side and say, may I never achieve a, a, a tomato plant, it'll still happen, right? Because the conditions are all there. And so what are the causes and conditions? So this is really pretty important, isn't it? Because this is, once again, pratita samudpada, this is a dependent origination. If you bring all the necessary causes and conditions together, then the fruit will, will arise. So, there, is the, there are the outer and the inner. Today I'm just going to cover the outer. Because as I've seen, as, well, from the, uh, more than 30 years of my own practice, uh, how enormously important the outer circumstances are, your environment. Uh, so I know very well from my own perspective. Uh, but also now having guided people in long-term retreats for... Uh, yeah, six years, six years. Um, it just, it winds up, it really looms large when you see that you really, as far as you can possibly tell, that your inner circumstances are really good. And you have to, one has to judge this for oneself, but also as a teacher, I'm trying to evaluate how, you know, are, are the students bringing what's needed from their side? And overall, I think they really are. Motivation, discipline, ethics, all of that, really good. But then this outer, the outer conditions, uh, well, these are as important as the inner conditions. Like, maybe not quite as important, but nevertheless, if it's indispensable, it's indispensable. So let's just get right to it. So what you need here in terms of the outer is a supportive environment. And as we found, especially over the last six years, not living in traditional Tibet, um, such a supportive environment doesn't, doesn't, as we say in America, doesn't grow on, doesn't grow, they, don't, they don't grow on trees. You don't just kind of bump into one, a supportive environment. It turns out you kind of pretty much have to create it. And it sounds strange, but we'll see, so see why. But it's so prosaic. So what, what are the... Now, this is all broken down. This is very, really quite scientific, actually. So what constitutes a supportive environment? Food, clothing, and so on are easily obtained. So when you say food, clothing, and the only, only other thing that really springs to mind, okay, shelter, and then medical care, if you need, occasionally need medical care. So 
Food, clothing, shelter, medical care. That's it. But for that, you're going to have to have some degree of wealth. I mean, some. Uh, my, some uh, a number of my students are living on $10 a day. That's assuming that they don't have to pay anything for rent. If they have to pay rent, then okay, that's, that's another whole issue. $15 a day, pretty common, right? $20 a day, definitely, definitely, $20 a day. Um, but then where are you going to get that from? Well, if you're of my generation and you've had a reasonably successful career, you've probably saved up enough, not a big deal. You know, one year, five years, ten years, um, you know, longer. If, depending on how successful you've been, you have some savings backed up, so no problem. If you're 20, you're 25, you don't have that kind of backlog of, of you know, professional success and investment and so forth, then you may, not j just, may just not have it, right? So I'm, I'm bringing this into the 21st century because, as you know, I'm working with a whole network of people around the world to try to create a network of contemplative observatories that's going to create such environments, right? But what if you're 20 or 25? And you're, you know, if you were living in Tibet 80 years ago, it would be so simple. You'd feel, just like Geshe Rapton, when he was 19 years old. Geshe Rapton. He was living on this, he, everything was set. I mean, the success tracks. I mean, his father owned a ranch. And his father wanted to turn it over to him. You know, he was going to be the heir. It was very clear. Uh, and he was bright, he was capable, uh, it was a good spread, it was the Ponderosa, you know, anybody who's ever watched Bonanza, it's, it just reminds me so much of that. It's just like a good old-fashioned successful ranch with yaks and so forth and so forth. And he just looked at it. And by the age of 19, he picked, he kind of, he got this glimmering when he was 17. And then 18 and 19, he kept on going back to his dad, dad, I don't want to stay here. This is just a, a place to get old and die. Every year we're doing the same doggone thing. We're taking the yaks up in the summer. We come down, we eat, we get through the winter. We take the cat. Oh, man, there's no hope. There's no hope. This isn't doing it for me. But I saw those monks. It was just so classic. I saw that caravan of monks coming by, and they had something that I want. And I'm not going to get it here, and I've got to go. And finally, on the third, it was so classic story. Finally, on the third, his father said, uh, okay, but not this year, next year. Well, he just took off. He said, okay, he's never going to let me go. And this is a Buddhist father, you know. But he loved his son. And if, if his son left, his, his son wanted, Gisharapna wanted to go off to central Tibet. It's a th three-month journey on foot, two-month journey on a, ya on a horse. The father reckons if, if he goes, I'll probably never see him again. That's pretty heavy for a father. He didn't want him to go. Say, there's a monastery right here. What's the problem? But the, the place to get a real education was three-month journey away. He wanted to go to Saddam Manassi University. You know. So again... So easy to go into tangents here. But, so there he was, 19. Well, he took off. And by the time, he had his own horse. He had a bit of, little bit of provisions. But by the time he got to Plaza, the horse, it was a two-month journey. The horse was wasted. And so he was hoping he could sell it and live on that. Well, the horse wasn't worth anything, and a guy just ripped him. The guy, a guy said, yeah, I'll buy it to him. And then they never gave him the money. So he arrived in Plaza, age 19, no horse, no money, and then he proceeded on to get another 19 years of education there. And it was tough. It was really, really tough. But he never had a swollen belly. He was never starving. It was just really tough. And then after 10 years or so, and he was proving himself to be an outstanding student, he, he started having students of his own. Then, hedonically, it got a bit easier. But it was really a trial. That, that first 10 years was not easy. He's living on barley flour and, and, and some butter tea for 10 years. And, and not to mention the 
rancid yak butter. You know, that's what gives you the real nutrition. So in any case, as I'm envisioning, okay, that's the good old days. As I'm envisioning 2013, 2015, and so on, um, will there be, so again, for people my generation or even half a generation down, we're probably okay, probably okay. But for younger ones who you know, are looking, maybe I've got 60 years to go of practicing Dharma and that's all I want to do, they're like Gisharatan. Well, there's not a monastery they can just tap into and say, here I am, I'm ready to study and practice. Where are you going to go? And they say, oh, sure, come on in, we'll support you. You might find something like that, but not so easy. Right? And especially if all you want to do is meditate. If that's it, you want to go from the inside out, right? Not to become an acharya, get a big degree, and develop a lot of external skills that could be marketable. That, you know, like I lived for quite a while as, as an interpreter. Then you get a little bit of income, then you can live, right? But if you're just going to want to be just a straight yogi, then you're not developing for the time being any marketable skills. Maybe one day you can teach meditation. And so as I'm envisioning this, I'm just thinking, what could they do? And I would invite everybody on the Dreamcast to think with me. If we're relying on benefactors, you know, a person goes off, we create a contemplative observatory, they need somewhere between 10 and 20 American dollars per day. That's a good, good bandwidth. It shouldn't cost more than 20. Um, but they don't have it. You know, maybe they've got 1,000 saved up. Well, that's a pretty short retreat. You know? um, how can they do that? And so poss one possibility is more and more people who are living successful lives, they're in the world, they have extra cash, they say, look, um, you know, our governments all over the world are supporting young people to, to pursue, pursue careers in science. And if they're good in high school, they may get a full scholarship for college, but if they, if they do really well in college, you'll know this, Eric, and I know this in America, if you're really good in college, you prove yourself to be a really good science student, at least in America, I can't speak for Europe, but you get a free ride. If you get accepted into a graduate program in any of the natural sciences in America, then you're gonna, they're going to make it work, work, work out for you. You'll get a fellowship, you'll get teaching assistantships, you'll get research grants, you'll get, at the very least, you get loans, but you'll probably come out with loan-free in America if you get accepted. Because this is the whole, the whole society supporting young people to pursue, pursue careers in science because they figure we do that, this is going to be a it's going to flow right back to us, and that's going to turn out to be a good investment. And I say hallelujah. If you think I'm going to be skeptical here or cynical, you're wrong. I think it's wonderful because we've gotten the benefits: science, technology, all these bright young people not having to be rich in order to get a graduate degree in one of the natural sciences. It's a wonderful thing, and I have nothing more to say to that. Then that's a wonderful thing, you know. It would also be a wonderful thing if there were such support for people wanting to follow contemplative science and so radically transform themselves that they're coming back not to serve society's hedonic needs, which is all, what all the scientists are doing, which is a wonderful thing. I'm not going to pull back on that. But also have people who've gone through five, six, eight, ten years of training in order to serve people's society's eudaimonic needs. And I don't mean just converting to Buddhism. I think you know me well enough by now to help people find genuine happiness. And why? Because they've had ten years of professional training and they've experienced it. And they embody it. And they can help other people find more meaningful lives. Whether it's Christian, Buddhist, as humanists, you don't need to follow a religion, right? Taoist or whatever, whatever their heart leads them to. So I think it would be marvelous. I mean, oh, why isn't it happening already? It seems to me, I mean, I live largely in the world, the possibility. You might have noticed that. Uh, why isn't that already happening? It would be such a tremendous boom. But we can't count on it happening. It's not happening now much. It's happening a little bit. There are some generous benefactors doing exactly what I just said. And I'm so happy for them. 
and pleased with them, happy for them, they're doing something really wonderful. But barring that, if we think of the medieval period, I'm running on again, that's the breaks. But if we think of another really tough time, we're in a dark ages right now, as I've suggested for the mind sciences. Well, this isn't the first dark age. I took that term from like the 8th century, the 7th century, and so forth. The whole civilization of Rome had collapsed, and they didn't have a good replacement throughout Europe. They had a civilization, they lost it, and then they had kind of like dark ages. But somehow, the, those who maintained the civilization until coming out of the, you know, the latter part of the Middle, the middle Ages and the revival of the, the, the creation of universities and then gradually the economy getting up and so forth and so on, um, those who maintained, held the torch of civilization in Europe were the monks, overwhelmingly the monks. And they were, and, but, but they didn't have wealthy benefactors all, all over the place saying, oh, sure, we'll just keep... No, they, they, they made wine, they made brandy, they, they made hand, handicrafts, they, they farmed, they, and, and they ran hostels, they ran little ho uh, hotels. So, so they, were, they, they were. So they made a living while still following their monastic way of life. So they were doing both, right? And in that way, they could support themselves. And if young men wanted to join the monastery, they, said, hey, they would say, sure, come on in. And then they would have some work to do, but they would also be, get their monastic training. So I think we kind of have to think along hard times because we are not living in an impoverished society on the whole, that is at least, in the, well, that's a complex statement, but you know what I'm, when I, what I'm getting at. The world as a whole is not impoverished. But we're impoverished spiritually and we're impoverished contemplatively. That you're not going to find a whole lot of support out there. Look in the media, how, many, how much support is in the media? Oh yes, we're supporting contemplative. And so I'm envisioning, could yogis live and sustain themselves by working two hours a day. Working two hours a day, something that generates income. You know. The internet is an obvious thing. But it doesn't clutter up their mind a lot, junk up their mind so they have to go into rehab every, you know, after their two hours of work and try to get all the junk out of their mind that came in while they were working. Could they do farming? Could they do something simple that would allow them to earn $20 a day? Two hours is minimum wage, or pretty close. And so I'm envisioning that. So envision with me if you think this is worthwhile. But uh, there's the first one. Food, clothing, and so on are easily obtained. We're going to run a tiny bit late, but I think the other ones I can go on now pretty more simply. Second one, you're not disturbed by people, carnivorous animals, and so on. Well, that's kind of a big one. People? Man, in India, when I was way up in the side of the mountain, um, I, I could really go on, and I already have. But I was way up there. You know, I thought, man, it was an hour, what was it? An hour and a half hike. An hour and a half hike to get up there. It's like, yeah, it was a 90-minute hike to get up from the cloud gunge to where the little yogi uh, cluster of huts was, where I lived. Um, so you think, really remote, right? Except for every morning and evening, I'd hear this loud, blaring Indian mu movie soundtrack s uh, singing, you know, all that kind of business. Every morning. And I thought, man, I thought I'd gotten away with it. That was an hour and a half hike to get up here. And the, mu the, the music was coming right, there was a, a, a monk's hut right in front of mine. And I thought, man, every morning this guy is turning on this music, his transistor radio. <laughs> Jeez, I mean, I'm a Westerner, I think I would be the schmuck that would do that, not some Tibetan. And I was kind of getting, oh, yeah, this is really pissing me off. And it turned out, of course, he wasn't doing that at all. It was a hamlet down below, about a half a mile away. And these Indian villagers want to be so generous with their, the community, they put loudspeakers on the top of their house. And every morning and evening, they would turn on the movie soundtracks, the music, just so everybody could enjoy it. 
But of course, sound travels up here, so we're, we're hearing it like it's coming right next door. So finding a quiet place in India, that's kind of almost impossible. They got 1.1 1, 1. 1 billion people in that little country. So that's a lot of noise. And they all seem to own transistor radios. <laughs> so a quiet place, a quiet place, not that easy. It sounds bizarre, but it turns out to be not that easy. Not disturbed by people at all, and not by carnivorous animals, like oh, mosquitoes that are, that are carrying malaria, or dung fever, or dogs, or cobras, or etc. Or yapping white Yorkshire Terriers. <laughs> That's the one I remember very vividly. So there it is, but it's simple. And then the location is pleasant, that is not inhabited by enemies. But also you want, when you step out of your hut, if you're living in a little meditation hut, it really is wonderfully beneficial to be able to step out into an area where you're, oh, a beautiful natural area. You don't need to own it at all. It has, it, ownership is irrelevant. But you step out and there's the beauty of nature. It, it lightens the heart. It brings gladness to the heart. But it doesn't tend to bring much attachment. Like, oh, I wish I could own that. You look out on the Grand Canyon, very few people think, oh, I wish I could, how much is it per, square, you know, per acre? You know, not many people think, I want to own the Grand Canyon or the, you know, anything like that. You, pretty much, you just enjoy it. You know? And while it's nice to have, and this is why monks throughout the world for millennia have found, established the hermitage and monasteries in gorgeous places, in gorgeous places, and not because they're just you know, looking for high, high real estate and wanting to hold on but for the beauties of nature. It really is helpful. So location is pleasant. The land is good, that is, it does not make you ill. So uh, in now in 21st century, uh, areas that are contam heavily contaminated, you know, whether by pesticides, by herbicides, um, the, the water you can't drink, the air is foul, you know, if you're near a city, the air could be pretty bad. Uh, then you have another one. I'm going to finish this. We'll go on a little bit late, but we're almost finished. This is another one. See, you, see, this is simple, but then when you, when you go through it, it's, you don't find them that easily. You have to create them. And then you have good companions. It's good to, unless you're already an accomplished yogi, you know you can live in total solitude and be a happy camper. It's really, really helpful to have some good companions. And that means not just nice people who are then going off to you know, their work every day and coming back, people who share your ethical discipline and your views. Um, that are they're similar to your own. In other words, they get what you're doing. They're not saying, hey, come out, there's a great you know, football game playing, let's go see, let's, oh, there's something good on television. Uh, 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 uh. They're not doing that. They get it, that you want to just do your practice because they're just doing their practice. And then if you're having a really bad day, you're going through some really heavy yum, and it's in between sessions, and you come to them for help, not for chit-chat, not to share your contagious mental afflictions, but for a bit of spiritual companionship, they get it. They've had their own yam. And maybe they can give you some peer counseling, you know, as friends, spiritual friends. So having spiritual friends who really totally get your, your practice. I know some of my yogis have gone off to um, be in retreat centers where nobody else is doing shamatha. So then these people say, what are you messing around with shamatha? You should, be doing, you should be doing the pujas and the, you know, the stuff we're doing. Where's your mantras? Where's your visualization? Where's your puja? What, you know, what, what are you doing just sitting there? And so then again, there's tension. It's not that what these people are doing is wrong. It's not wrong at all. It's fine. But it's not shamatha. And they tend to make a lot of noise when they're doing it. 
drums and dambaroos and blah, 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 blah. You know, nothing wrong with all of that. But if you're going to be ringing your bells and having drums, it's better to have other people ringing bells and drums and not one person going, oh, crap. <laughs> so they're derby. And then others studying, you know. Or I, heard, I, heard, I read a statement recently, I think I'll keep it all vague, but by one very fine lama. And he went to another lama and said, you know, in your, um, in your, in your dharma center here, I'd really like to have more meditation. And the lama said, well, in my training, we didn't meditate. In my school, in my monastery, it was, a, it, was a, it was a debating monastery. We didn't meditate, and so, mm, no thanks. That's not what I did. And so actually monks, you know. Uh, and I'm sure a very good monk. I, I, I met him a, a long time ago. A good monk, fine monk, excellent monk. But they don't meditate. They study, and they debate, and they teach. And they study, and debate, and teach. Study, debate, teach. Study, debate, teach. That's it. There's no meditation, apart from some discursive meditation. But shamatha is doing nothing. What do you mean? That's, that's not doing anything at all. You're just sitting there. Don't just sit there. Do something. You know? So you can get resistance even from very knowledgeable, very dedicated, very ethical Buddhists. They say, but that's wasting your time. Well, you do something. You're not going to achieve shamatha. So you, know, you don't need that kind of ball and chain of the people around you, even if they're practicing dharma, totally not getting what you're doing. That's a drag. It really is literally a drag. And so having good companions. Uh, the ideal is like having, if, you're, if you have 16 or 20 people, uh, form rather clusters, little clusters like pods. Like I, I've envisioning, for example, four, four room cabins. So a little meditation hut with four rooms with really good insulation. So there'll no, be no bells ringing, but some people can snore and you can't control that. So that the, wall, the, the walls then have enough insulation that if one is snoring, then the next-door neighbors don't have to live with that, you know? So something really simple, but then you could have little, these little pods where you know that the, the personal chemistry among the four people is all good. They should probably be all the same gender. just makes things a little bit simpler. Uh, so obviously it doesn't get complex uh, in terms of desire. Um, but then you have kind of like a little family, a little Dharma family. They have that when I went to university. We had we're dorm rooms, but then we had these little suites of little clusters. And I think it was about six or say when I was at the University of California at San Diego. And we, it was a large dorm, I mean, probably 10 stories high, but had all these little suites. So that was your little, your little family there. And we all got to know each other. But we didn't know the people in the other suite, you know, because hundreds of them. And so something like that, where you have kind of a nuclear group that you know each other, you're really, you're all buddies. So we have just one, one buddy per person. Well, you have three buddies. You know? And so that can be very helpful. So you're not lost in a big crowd of a lot of chit-chat and social networking and so forth. You're really in there for your own solitary practice. But you've got a few friends. You're looking after them, they're looking after you. So little pods of four people can be a really good idea. Right? And then, so good, and their ethical discipline is good. That's absolutely crucial. And their views primarily, it's not, you know, it's not a doctrinal issue. Do you, do you believe literally in the six realms or do you not? Otherwise, I won't meditate with you. You know, not like that. Do their values, or, you know, do they get what you're doing? And is there, is there any kind of friction? Better not. And then finally, your location has few people around during the daytime and little noise at night. So it's secluded, it's quiet, and they say little noise at night. They often refer, uh, this is coming from Indo-Tibet, uh, dogs at night, people during the daytime. Dogs at night. So dogs tend to, I've, been in, I've lived in a number of places where dogs will enter into a whole chorus. Multiple places in Brazil, oh boy, the dogs will go into a chorus there. 
one would start, and then they would, you know, it's just like a, it would go on and on and on. They'd all, I guess they're just, I don't know what they're doing, communicating after Zoom. So the dogs do it at night, and then in Dharamsala we had special fun because we had these Reese's monkeys, lots and lots of Reese's monkeys. And it seems like the monkeys hated the dogs, and the dogs hated the monkeys. And so they would get into big fights at night. And the monkeys would yowl, and the dogs would bark and growl, and uh, all very entertaining, but not very conducive for shamatha. And during the daytime, then, of course, the village. So there it is, creating such an environment, cre- and multiple environments. So again, what he didn't mention is, and, and if, if I were writing this in the 21st century, no visa problems, because that's an enormous one. You know, Most places, three months, six months, Bye-bye, get out, and maybe don't come back for some months. Because they don't want you to just going to go to the border and come right back in again. So how can you go there and not have to leave every three months? I mean, that's, that's what the first thing that uh, cut my retreat short when I, was, when I went to Dharamsala in 1980, just to meditate. Uh, I got three months, and then rather gruffly, when I went for the renewal, the policeman told me, I'll give you three months, but don't ask again. As if I was kind of... Well, you know, just their policy. There was nothing personal about it. Or there might have been, but I don't know what I did. Um, But he told me, you know, don't even bother to ask again. You're out six months. Take a hike. Very gruff, very gruff. Um, So then then I had to go to another country. I did, went down to Sri Lanka. But that is an interruption. And it's not only the interruption of going there, but the interruption in anticipation. As you're thinking, okay, in one month I need to go, where shall I go, how shall I get back in? It, it, it clutters the mind. They have to always be on the move, on the move, right? Involuntarily. So, so no visa problems. And I'm really working on that, to create a contemplative observatory. This is my passion. To be able to create a contemplative observatory in the United States, where I think pretty much anybody besides Canadians can't stay for more than six months. You're out, you have to leave. I think I've got a strategy now where we might be able to do it, because what I'd really love to see is a contemplative observatory there uh, that is totally international, wherever you're from. Uh, yes, you can come, and we can work it out with, with visas. So you want to stay for five years, ten years, we can work it out. So this is a passion of mine. I would really love to see that. Right? And so we're doing our best. We're making good progress. We have a marvelous group of team, a team of people very dedicated to this. Uh, in Santa Barbara, we'd like to do it in that environment. It's a lovely environment, very, very gentle, very serene environment. And so, so this is one of the outer pieces. And if one doesn't have, even though this is so prosaic, everything I said, you think, hey, money can buy that. And money can buy that. If you have enough money, you can buy land in such a place, and you can buy buildings, and you can buy everything needed there. Um, then the question is, yeah, who's going to pay for it? Who's going to pay for it? Because everybody thinks, oh, that's not my center. I want to take care of myself. I want to take care of myself. I hope somebody else does it. If somebody else, like the little red hen, anybody know that story? The little red hen that's happy for everybody else to bake the cake and then wants to come, oh, that looks like good cake. Yeah, what did you do to help bake the cake? Is it called the little red hen? The little red hen. Everybody wants to be the little red hen or like the, you know, make it and I will come. (laughs) You know, make the cake and I will come. Well, it may work out that way. Maybe Santa Claus will drop in and make the cake and everybody can come. Or maybe it's going to turn out to be necessarily more of a grassroots where people says, well, I want to eat that cake, so maybe I better contribute some sugar or some wheat or I've got an oven. 
and then a collaborative. And so we see that it's not just relying on people outside, but the people who would like to participate in it, they're creating it. And then they get to be recipients of their own generosity. So this is six years now. Uh, six years I've been quite literally evangelizing about this. Not for a religion, not for a creed, not for a sect, not for me, be my follower. I think you might have picked up on that. That's not my shtick. Um, but I have been evangelizing this. And after uh, actually, actually more like 12 years of evangelizing this, one place has been created. One. But it's a good one. And it, took, and it wasn't, wasn't cheap. It wasn't cheap. Because they built really good, sturdy, well-manufactured huts. And this is eight cabins in Mexico, about two hours outside of Mexico City. And I visited there shortly before coming here. Uh, they're filled. The yogis there are very qualified. They're sincere, dedicated, ethical, high aspirations. Uh, the only thing they don't have is a resident teacher, which would be awfully nice. They don't have that. I'm available by internet, but it's not the same, of course. So I, I think it would be lovely if they had a resident teacher, but nevertheless, they're in the absence of that, and we, we all know it, it can't happen right now, uh, they are really doing very well. They're learning, they're, they're being each other's gurus, they're being each other's spiritual friends, and they know they can contact me, and I always write back quickly. They're, they write to Tony Karam. I'm sure he responds quickly. But that's one. And then other ones are still in the gestation period, still kind of coming up. But it's quite clear, without, this, without the supportive environment, it doesn't happen. I know so many who've just been dragged down by trying to do it at home, in their parents' home, at home with a spouse who's not really into it, but loves them. You know? I mean, it's really lovely. But the spouse living one way of life and the other spouse trying to be a total yogi, it's really tough. It's, really, it's all well-meaning. There's no one doing anything bad. But it doesn't always happen that two spouses are on the same continuum, sharing the same worldview, that having that rise, that great surge of wanting to devote themselves to Dharma at the same time. It doesn't happen all the time. In which case, that is problematic. Let's put it that way. It's difficult. Right? So the outer environment... It's practical. It's, uh, it's one of those problems that can be solved with money. But maybe, I don't know, the fact that it's so slow in coming, maybe the blessings of the Buddha, the karma, the situation, is such that that's not how it should be. Maybe that's not how it should be solved. That a, pump, a whole bunch of people would like to participate, not doing it. They were just saying, somebody else please bake the cake for us. Where's the Alan, where's your rich benefactor? My answer is, I don't have one. Well, get one. You know, get one to make us a cake, you know, because we really want to meditate. Maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe it will never happen. I don't know. It could happen. I would be very happy. This would, this would happen by a very wealthy man that created an environment for us, you know, for the time being. It's not a, not a contemplative observatory, but it is what we have here. This is the seventh of these, and he's kept the rates very, very modest, and that's out of generosity, his genuine support for Dharma. But a contemplative observatory, that's another, that's another issue. So it may descend from above. Some very wealthy person said, oh, $5 million check? Sure. You want two? That could happen. You know? But if it doesn't, maybe that's because where we are in history right now is if this is needed, if this is, not just, my, if this is just my idea, then I suddenly feel very relaxed. I mean, I mean, like Dzogchen relaxed. Because then I don't need to do anything. Because I've got a little cottage. And it's all set. And I don't have to worry about my, my get, having enough to eat. Not for the rest of this life. I'm set. So if there's no need, then there's no need for me to do anything. That I get to relax. And I can spend the rest of my life in retreat. That's no problem. 
But would I love to be able to contribute out? Would I love to see a whole network? Absolutely, I said, I would adore that. So maybe it will come from top down, but if not, then the only alternative is that people who would like to participate in such long-term retreat center, contemplative observatory, they will demonstrate their passion, their dedication, their sincerity by it being a grassroots coming up. And then they can always count on me, and then I know other really fine teachers, because this is nothing about me as me, other fine teachers who could then guide individuals in such communities. So we'll see how things play out. But so far, it's been very slow in coming in terms of top-down, except for this one place right here. But for contemplative observatories, maybe it will be top-down. Maybe it has to be bottom-up. And then thinking also, it's good to create such an environment. But now can anybody come, unless they're already relatively wealthy, you know, and they can go into a five, ten-year retreat with their own savings? Uh, well, if that's not going to happen, then how does it become bottom-up? So something can be done. It doesn't have to be so complicated to be able to earn $20 a day. I think these are all tractable mm, problems. So a number of you, like Scott, for example, you've, in your business, you've, I'm, I'm sure you must have, I'm going to speculate here, but you must have encountered in the course of your business sometimes encountering a large problem. You say, whoa, that's a, that's a big one. How do we do that? And then you and other very bright people get together. How do we break this down into smaller problems that are tractable? that we, can, we handle that part. We just got 5% of the problem done. Oh, there comes another 10%. Here's how we fix that one. And so this is one of those things. A contemplative observatory, okay, it's big, but hey, it's, it's not the Manhattan Project. You know, it's not something enormous, but then breaking it down. Land, boom, boom, boom. The pieces are all there. It's like we have a jigsaw puzzle in front of us. It's not assembled, but every single piece is there. You know? Is there enough surplus wealth in the world to create a few contemplative observatories? Oh, I think so. And so that's there. Is there enough land on the globe that you can find a quiet place, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, definitely. Even in India. Even in India. You know. and, so, and then are there yogis who would really love to devote themselves to it? I can answer that. Yes, there are. Definitely are. And they're, they're good. They're really sincere. Are there teachers who could gradually populate such places? Yeah, there are. We'll have to look more, but there are already ladies-in-waiting, except for some of them are men, you know, ready, ready to go. I know two of them. Really good. They're both ready. They're like, they're like a rock and a slingshot, you know? Direct me. And I'm saying, there's no land. There's no land. There's no place. But as soon as there is, I'll let you know. Because you're really good. I know two. Really good. You know? So that means all the pieces are there. Then it's just waiting. Okay. Is it going to come together or not? If it doesn't, then I said, you know, I'm in a win-win situation. I'd love to see this happen. I think I don't need to persuade you of that. And I will devote the rest of my life to see this happen if there is coming from reality side, if it's rising up to me. But if it's not rising to me, then I'm still winning, and my life becomes a lot simpler. You know? So I'm going to be happy either way. But I'd prefer to be happy publicly than privately. Publicly a little bit engaged. That would be my preference, because I see greater benefit. Possibly. But I could be wrong. Maybe it'd be a better benefit for me to go into a 30-year retreat. Oh, man, that, sounds, that just suddenly sounded really good. <laughs> Enjoy your day. It's now 10.19, so uh, let's have the first interview at 10.25. So we're 25 minutes late, and I'll see you all later. Enjoy your day. <laughs>